you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read the first 10 verses together this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaking says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for your guidance. We thank you that you give us all the spiritual nourishment that we need on a daily basis as we come and we hear from you. You know that your word is profitable for all sorts of teaching that we might understand who you are and what you require of us. We know that it's profitable for correcting both our our bad thoughts as well as our bad hearts. We know that in many ways, Lord, it is also very, very useful in encouraging your people, strengthening us in difficult days, helping us in the midst of our weakness, uh, helping us even in our ignorance and our foolishness that you would give us uh, a wisdom that rises above ourselves. We pray that as we come to your word again this morning, not only that you would soften our hearts and illumine our minds to receive your word, but Lord, that the Spirit would accompany the reading and the preaching of your word this day, that we might know the mind of God and walk with Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, particular passage that we're studying this morning kind of holds a special place in my heart. It was one of the first texts that I ever preached on uh, after graduating from seminary. Literally the day after I walked across the platform with my cap and gown, I got in my little Honda Civic in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and drove 2,100 miles away to my first ministerial job in Yellowstone National Park. And uh, I got there, I think it was on a Friday, if I remember correctly, and I met Ellen there. She had already flown there, and there were a number of others that were on my ministry team. I had gotten hired to be a chaplain for the summer. And uh, the very next day, we walked around to all the campsites uh, in the southeastern area of the park to invite all the visitors to the park to come to a worship service the following day. So we had three services every Sunday, two in the morning and one in the evening. And uh, a wide variety of people would, would come and hear. But uh, since I had just arrived and then the very next day we're out doing our thing, I only had maybe about two or three hours that night to prepare a sermon. And I had no idea what I was preaching on. 
Uh, but as we were going throughout the campsite, and I was trying to rack my brain, what could I preach on? What could I preach on? It dawned upon me, well, I'm passing all of these tents. Maybe I should talk about camping somehow. And so it was this passage that came to mind from 2 Corinthians where Paul compares our bodies to tents. So I tried studying the passage as much as I could that night. Very little. I'm sure it was a horrible sermon. Hopefully this one will be better. And then I got out my tent that morning out of the back of my car, and I set it up on the stage on the platform where they do the ranger talks at the amphitheater because that's where we also did the sermons on Sundays. And uh, I remember opening the sermon simply by asking the crowds a couple questions. Uh, First of all, how much were they enjoying camping that week? And, of course, everyone was happy, raising their hands. Yay, it's great. It's awesome. And so then I asked them, I said, well, what would happen if I say, let's do it one more week? How would you be okay with that tenting for another week? And again, most people were very ecstatic. If they could stay another week, they would. And then I said, well, how about for a month? Would you be okay staying here for a month? And a few hands went down. You know, maybe about a third of the people weren't as happy. And then uh, I said six months, and then finally got to a year, and everybody's hand went down. Nobody wanted to camp for a year. You imagine uh, the passage that we read earlier uh, in the book of Numbers. God commanded them to camp for months at a time, sometimes perhaps even up to a year. Whenever he said, camp, go camp. And they set up their tent and they went to that particular place. And then they picked up their stakes and moved to another place. And they did it again and again and again. I think most of us would agree that camping can be fun for a few days. Not quite as exciting for a few years, especially when you don't have running water, especially when you don't have a bed, especially when you're getting bitten by mosquitoes, especially when you have to go outside to pee, all those things, right? It gets kind of old, and so what can be fun for a short period of time can be absolutely miserable for long periods of time, unless you go glamping, you know, glamour camping where you have not only running water and electricity, but some people even have Wi-Fi and hot tubs. Part of their camper. Has anybody glamped in that way? I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul means when he's referring to our bodies as tenting or camping in that sense. It's not uh, you know, enjoying the comforts of home. It's not enjoying luxury, resort-type living, uh, but rather something of the nature of... This is not meant to be for a long period of time. This is meant to be temporary in nature at best. Uh, If you remember, the Apostle Paul himself was a tent maker, right? Or at least you might say he's a tent repairer. Uh, I'm not sure if he actually made the tents as much as perhaps he fixed many of them. Uh, Of course, most people living uh, at that time in the Roman Empire, at least in the cities, were dwelling in permanent homes made of clay, of stone, of various natures. So most people weren't living in tents in the cities, And yet, you can imagine a number of reasons why you would want a tent maker or a tent repairer of some kind in the cities. And Paul was often doing these things in the cities. Uh, Think of it this way. The Jews would celebrate a very important feast once a year for about a week in the fall. That was called the Feast of Tabernacles, Booths, the Feast of Tents, whatever you want to call it. During that time, they would need a tent maker, tent repairer. 
because a lot of people would be having holes in their roofs and other nature, other things at, 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 that, at that rate, and so he would be there to help them, as well as just a, a number of other temporary abodes that would be needed at other feasts throughout the year. So in Jerusalem, certainly he could be working in that capacity, but also in the Greek and Roman cities as well. Uh, we think of the Olympic Games today, but there are a number of other games that were like that that happened about every two years, the Isthmian Games and others, where all of a sudden you'd have millions of people that would descend upon one city. And there weren't hotels back then. Where do you think they stayed? Many people were tenting in very large open fields just outside the city, and they would need tent makers to help them find a place to live. But again, it was meant to be something temporary, in nature, not permanent at all, something merely adequate for a short period of time. At best, if anyone would try to make it a permanent home, they would be very, very disappointed. They weren't designed even to last throughout the winter. But why is the Apostle Paul talking about tenting? Why is he talking about camping, if you will? Well, he's comparing our current physical bodies to that of a tent, uh, that is merely temporary in nature, not one that we're meant to cling to at all tight from last saying, all of us are doing wait day by day, whereas our inner self being renewed each spirit. Paul was talking his courage, strictly face of uh, persecution to death, because he knows that he is temporary at best, and he's looking for longing much better, a more permanent abundance. So he explains bold civilizations, face of all persecution, know as this abode waiting one of our oh that if it, that is our earth roy we and his point here his body is going to be the way whether through persecution or whether through the day by day wasting away either way it's not permanent therefore he's not clinging to this earthly body but rather is longing for a better body an eternal one one that he will receive in the future through his faith in Christ Jesus that just as God replaced the temporary temporary tabernacle in Israel and replaced it with a permanent temple building in the same way that Jesus uh, put off his temporary body and then at the resurrection put on a permanent body in the same way the Apostle Paul is saying that we will also receive that permanent body on the final day of judgment. Now this passage is primarily talking about that last day, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment. However, in passing, Paul is giving us a little bit of information about what we might call, or at least what theologians call, the intermediate state. Is that a term you guys use often? You talk about the intermediate state? The intermediate state is that state of people, both believers as well as unbelievers, in between the time of their death and the time of the final judgment. Where are they? What are they like? What form did they take? What's happening to them? Those are all questions that relate to the intermediate state. Well, we know, first of all, that Jehovah's Witnesses, some Seventh-day Adventists, and others who believe in what's called soul sleep are absolutely wrong in this regard. They teach that after someone dies on this earth, whether good or evil, immediately they what? Fall asleep. And they're unconscious, and for thousands of years... They are dead to the world, dead to God, dead to everything, if you will. Of course, they're misunderstanding the analogy of sleep in reference to the body. When the Apostle Paul and Jesus both speak of the person being asleep, what they mean is their body is lying so still, it seems as if they're asleep, right? But they're not referring to the soul. They're just referring to the body. The body is as if it's asleep. Clearly, we've got a couple examples in the New Testament alone 
in which Jesus and the Apostle Paul are explaining to us that there is more to this than the body. Uh, if you remember when Jesus talks about the rich man in Lazarus, right? Uh, we know that uh, the Lazarus was a poor man who was begging outside the gates of this rich man's house, just asking for bread. The rich man continued to ignore him and even perhaps uh, abuse him in some way or another. Well, when they both die, uh, Jesus says that the rich man uh, is immediately tormented in Hades. There's no time gap here. He's immediately tormented in Hades, whereas the poor man, Lazarus, is immediately escorted by the angels to what is referred to as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, depending upon your translation. All he means is that he's going to the same place that Abraham goes or Abraham went. So in other words, he's in paradise. It's the same terminology that Jesus uses later on when he's on the cross and the criminal beside him asks about his own eternal destiny after he has trusted in Christ. And Jesus says to him, what? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. He's not saying today you'll be asleep for a thousand years and that tomorrow may be something different. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me at Abraham's side would be another way of putting that. It's the same concept. So clearly those who have departed from this life, whether good or evil, awake and are conscious in another world immediately upon their expiration here. Life goes on, but in a different form. For now their soul is separated from their body, since their body is now lying decomposed in the grave. Of course, this isn't the final state for the believer, and that's Paul's point here. He's not focusing on the intermediate state. He's focusing on the final state, and this is what he's longing for, not to be unclothed or naked, if you will, or separated from his body, but rather to take on this permanent body, the resurrected body at the time of the final judgment, to receive what is due in the body, he says. So for the person who is the believer, will have a resurrected body in the new heavens and the new earth, whereas the person who is evil receives a resurrected body, but now in hell a permanent physical abode, just as the new heavens and the new earth is a permanent physical abode, at least in the language that we would use today. Unlike the Greek philosophers, he's sort of countering the Greek philosophers again and again, who taught that the soul was trapped in the body, that the body was evil, and that the soul was good, and that the souls will go and live disembodied eternally. He's saying, no, the body itself is good, and it will be resurrected both for the good as well as the evil. This was God's plan from the beginning. God didn't make Adam and Eve as disembodied souls. He gave them bodies. And these bodies are meant to be redeemed. And so Paul and Jesus are both teaching this concept of the resurrection of body again and again. Let's hear in our passage, Paul's not excited at all about the concept of being naked. And that's what he's talking about here, of being without a body. He's looking forward to what happens much farther in the future. He's hoping that it's not that much farther in the future. He's hoping that it's actually much sooner rather than later. So as he's describing this passage, uh, the transition, he's, he's describing particularly those who are still alive at the coming of Christ and their hope not to discard their old clothes. In other words, not to take off their old body, but rather to put on the new clothes almost like an overcoat, putting it on top of the current body. In other words, that the glorious resurrection body would immediately transform their current body without having to ever be naked. Does that make sense? 
So he's saying that that's what would happen. In a moment, they're transformed. They're transfigured like Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what he's explaining in this particular passage. Paul does not want to live uh, as a disembodied person. He wants to live in his resurrection body. Nevertheless, if that's not an option, and clearly that seems to be the case for the Apostle Paul, if Christ doesn't come back quickly, then the second best scenario for the Apostle Paul is in fact to be unclothed in paradise rather than to be clothed continually in this frail body of flesh that's continually subject to decay and to destruction. Uh, If you think about the passage in Philippians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is talking to the believers, and he says to them, it's necessary for me to remain in the flesh on your account for your progress and joy in the faith. Nevertheless, he says, for me to live is what? Christ, but to die is what? Gain. He's saying it's so much better to die, even if that means I am unclothed, than to stay here in this dilapidated body. So out of the three options mentioned, that of living in the resurrected body, the permanent eternal abode, or living in the temporary body that's falling apart, or living as a dismembered body, resurrection is the best, right? But then after that, the disembodied soul is still better than anything that we would face here on this earth. And so, verse 8, here's the reason why. He says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that, that even those expressions, being at home, being away, uh, refers res- uh, respectively to living either in your own country or living in a foreign country, like an immigrant would, right? So the goal is not to want to be an immigrant, but to rather to live in your own place, to live in your home place. And he's saying, if I'm going to be at home, I'm going to be at home with the Lord. As long as I'm here, I'm an immigrant in a foreign land. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien here. That's not my preference. I'd rather be at home and at home with the Lord. If you remember when Lot first moved to Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember, he was living on the outskirts of the city. He was dwelling in tents. But then over time, he started to make Sodom his home. He moved out. Look, go back to Genesis. You'll see he moves out of his tent, and now he's living in a house in Sodom. And then the next stage, he's living, and, and he's a big part of the city. He's now sitting at the city gates. He's one of the elders of the city. The one who at first was scared to be a part of that town now has made that town his home. He's doing the exact opposite of what Paul is saying we should do in reference to this body, in reference to the life in which we live. We should not seek to make this body permanent. In other words, we shouldn't constantly seek to have this to be our home, that this place around us, we should not continue to think that this is our home. This is not our home. We can't get too comfortable in this city and in this body. Both of them are going to be destroyed. Now, if we view our present condition properly, that's what Paul's talking about here, then we will naturally groan over our dilapidated bodies and also over these decaying cities that we dwell in. But we will also groan for an immortal body and an eternal home. If our perspective is right, this will be the natural consequence. In fact, Romans 8 uh, makes this very plain. There are three parties that the Apostle Paul speaks of, and all three of them are groaning. Uh, 
The first party that he speaks of is creation itself. He says creation is continually groaning as in the pains of childbirth as it eagerly awaits for the revelation of the sons of God so that it might be freed itself from bondage to corruption. So the earth wants to be renewed. You realize the earth is not going to be annihilated. No matter what you've been told, the earth is not annihilated. It is burned, but it's purged of evil, just as the earth was purged of evil through the flood. The earth is going to be redeemed, you see. It's not destroyed. But the earth itself wants to be purged. Of what? Of us. Of sinners, if you will. Until that sin is removed, you see. It's groaning. But at the same time, a second party Paul mentions in that same passage in Romans chapter 8, he says, we as believers, not unbelievers, but as believers also are groaning as we ourselves eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're eagerly, he says, groaning for a permanent body. Is that your normal outlook? Are you groaning for a permanent body? He says that should be the normal occasion. But because it's not, there's a third party that's also groaning. Who's the third party? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is continually groaning as he is interceding in our behalf. Why? Because we don't know how to pray as we ought, because we don't want the things that we ought to want. We don't think about the things that we ought to think about. We're trying to make our life permanent here and trying to set up furniture in a tent, thinking that we're going to live here forever, trying to extend our lives forever, and the Holy Spirit is groaning because of it. Because he knows that that's not our purpose. He knows that that's not God's will. He knows that when we think that way, we're not having the mind of Christ. And so he's groaning as he helps us to pray, even praying for us to pray the right things so that we would begin to long for a permanent home, that we would begin to say, Christ, come quickly, that we would begin to think about the day of judgment, that we would not continue to put off all of these things and ignore the true aspect of what we're experiencing right now. And so he's helping us not only in the process of sanctification that we might grow holy, but for the end of sanctification that we might be ready for glory, for our glorified bodies. This is what he's groaning for. For the common theme of groaning throughout is always having to do with the discarding of that which is temporary, the discarding of that which is meant to be destroyed, and then putting on that which is permanent that swallows up the rest in life. So the Holy Spirit's continually working in us that we might long for our real home. It's a very strange week for pastors in the PCA church. Um, Two of the biggest names in our denomination as of last week passed away back to back. On Thursday morning, uh, probably many of you don't know him as well, uh, Harry Reader. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Harry Reader. About 20 of you maybe. Uh, Harry Reeder is the pastor of one of the largest churches in the PCA. It's about a 5,000-member church, Briarwood Presbyterian Church. You've probably never heard that either. We've got to teach you guys a little bit more about PCA history. Briarwood Presbyterian Church was the church in which the first general assembly of our 
denomination ever met back in 1973, 50 years ago. It's sort of the mothership, if you will, of our denomination. And the pastor of that church died suddenly on Thursday. He was 75 years old. The very next day, another well-known prominent pastor within our denomination, which you probably have heard because he's been on the New York bestseller list numerous times, Tim Keller, heard that name? He passed away the very next day, age 73. Now, he died of pancreatic cancer. We knew that it was going to happen. He'd been on hospice for a little while. Harry Reader uh, hit the back of a, a dump truck. Still don't, I don't know fully the details, but he died instantly. Um, both men were in their um, mid-70s. Both were pastors of churches of about 5,000 members. Both had wrote a number of books. Both had spearheaded entire movements back-to-back that both died. One expected, one unexpected. Both of them immediately put off their bodies and are now at home with the Lord. Now, if I were to ask, uh, if I could go to heaven right now and ask them the question, wouldn't you rather be back on earth ministering to the church? They would, they would just laugh at me, laugh in my face. Not because they don't love the church, but it's so, so much better to be at home with the Lord than anything this world has to offer. And I'm sure they both knew that very, very well. Because those who have grown in their faith truly believe that wholeheartedly, that this world is not their home, that there is indeed a better home. It's not a matter of, it could be, it is. They firmly believe that. And every true believer who's growing in his or her faith believes it too. And that's why they're not so fearful of what might happen to them today or tomorrow or in the next couple of years. They're not so fearful of every aspect of sickness and cancer and everything else that could happen. Paul's desire, whether he lives or he dies, is to know Christ. His aim is to please Christ. And again, that's, that's very common for everyone who is a true believer. That, um, but it's not something that happens naturally. The Holy Spirit has to begin to work in our hearts because we naturally think that this flesh is our home. We naturally think that this world is our home and we have to be corrected in that way through the scripture. It reminds me of a letter a a pastor received from a nine-year-old girl uh, who who wrote simply, Dear Pastor, I hope to go to heaven someday, but later rather than sooner. I think all of us have felt that way at some point. Yeah, heaven sounds really nice. Maybe 50 years from now. After I've lived my life, after I've gotten married, I've had kids, I enjoyed whatever it is that I want to enjoy. The Apostle Paul would adamantly disagree. Adamantly. So why are you wasting your time? Every possible thing that you could want on this earth is nothing in comparison with heaven. It doesn't even come close. It's not even a fair comparison. He's so desperate to be with Christ. He'd be willing to lay down his life in an instant. Didn't matter what type of persecution he faced because he saw the reality, the truth of his heavenly home. I, 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 th- I may have shared with you before, there's a, a, 
um, a missionary that's somewhat famous uh, from China, E.H. Hamilton, um, back in the 1930s and 40s. He had a co-worker who was another missionary who isn't as well known, but he, um, this missionary was held up by criminals and was forced at gunpoint to hand over all of his money. And, and uh, it was interesting, the, these bandits, these criminals were so astonished by how he was responding to the incident. I mean, he was just He's like, okay, sure, yeah, whatever you want. You can have it, you know. It was just very calm, kind, collective. He was actually offering them extra things. You want this too or you want, you know. And uh, one of the bandits uh, said to him very pointedly, I, I don't believe you understand what's really happening here. Uh, we, we have the power to kill you, and, and we probably will. You know, as if that was all of a sudden going to shake him up and, you know, maybe he just wasn't in his right mind. But the missionary responded to them saying, well, you can do that if you want, but it will only usher me immediately into the presence of the Lord. So what? That's better for me. Go for it. What else do you want? But then one of them said, but aren't you afraid? As he's waving the gun in his face. And the missionary said, no. If you shoot me, I will go straight to heaven. What else could there be that's better? With that statement, the man shot him and killed him. And a week later, his body was found beheaded in a ditch to test it. <laughs> he didn't believe him. Took his life immediately. But one of the bandits who was with him, it wasn't the one who shot, but another one who was threatening him, uh, later recounts that story to E.H. Hamilton and to some of the others that were in China. And that was how he came to faith in Christ. Seeing his courage... Seeing his faith in something so much better than what they thought they were taking from him. It just overwhelmed him with the truth of the gospel. And so as a result, E.H. Hamilton wrote a, a poem um, about the fear of death. And it's entitled, uh, Afraid of What? And here's how it reads. It says, Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart. Brief darkness, but light, O oh, heaven's art. A wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? Of course not. Like that missionary of the Apostle Paul was not afraid to die. He was not afraid to suffer persecution. He welcomed it because he firmly, adamantly believed that it was better to be there than here. Whether in life or in death, his one desire was to please Christ According to verse 9, his sole aim was to please Christ. So that on the day of Christ's return, the Lord might say to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come now and enter into your rest. That makes sense to most Christians, I think, you know? At least theoretically. What doesn't make sense to them is verse 10. That one has baffled a number of people, I think. For there Paul also says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And of course the word all there is in reference to all Christians, not just to non-Christians, that all of us will stand before the judge 
in order to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, uh, what he's saying there is not contradictory to the doctrine of the justification by grace through faith. Paul is not saying that God is going to judge us in order to condemn us, but rather to commend us for the deeds done in the body. We'll talk about this. This is not something new. It's not something that Paul is saying that's not been said before. If you remember, Jesus likewise said something similar in the separation of the sheep and the goats. You remember that? Remember, the the difference between them is what they did or did not do. One did, the other didn't. And as a result, one received a commendation, one received condemnation. Same thing in Revelation chapter 22, verse 10. Verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what? According to what he has done, it says. Now, again, this is not contradictory. When we teach salvation... We teach salvation can only, only be by faith in the perfect works of Christ, the perfect sacrifice of Christ, because it takes perfection to get into heaven. What does Jesus say? Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To get into heaven, you have to be perfect. Who here qualifies? Nobody. The only way you'll get into heaven is by trusting in the perfect works of Christ. That's how you get in. However... On the day of judgment, there is still a judgment for believers as well as for unbelievers. I, I want to show you something from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter says this. He says, Our governors here on earth are ordained by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Do I need to say that again? That, that, that register, that should, that should like baffle you. The governor is supposed to Punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. But if I were to ask you the question, how many of you got a card from Governor Whitmer this year praising you for your good deeds? Raise your hand if you got one. I had a friend in Pittsburgh who would get a Christmas card from W. Bush every Christmas. He would show it off. and like, here's my card from the president. It never commended him for doing anything good. It commended him for giving him a lot of money because he was a big donor you know if that i never got a, any christmas cards from any of the presidents of the united states never once have been commended by a governor or a local official for not committing crimes or for doing you know the things that i'm supposed to do in contrast to those things but that is part of their job and could you imagine if someone actually ran on a ticket that said i'm going to praise the good you think he's crazy looney tunes Mom will praise the good, not just punish the evil. The problem is they end up punishing the good and commending the evil. That's what we do now, right? But even though human judges do it wrongly, not rewarding the good, the purpose of the judgment for the godly is so that finally, finally, it'll be recognized that good will be commended. There will be praise. There will be rewards. Because, I mean, after all, if there's not, why are you even trying to be good? There's no reward for goodness, right? Just wasting your time. You might as well just be evil as everybody else, right? He says there is a reward for doing good. Therefore, be not faint-hearted in doing good. There is a reward for goodness. The Apostle Paul said the same thing, First Corinthians. If you go back to the first, uh, first epistle, chapter 3, he says, God will enter into judgment with us in order to test our works. 
that are carried out according to our faith. He says, on the final day, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So again, this has nothing to do with being condemned on the day of judgment, right? If someone is a believer and is trusted in the perfect works of Christ, it doesn't matter what his works are in that sense, he's not going to be condemned if he truly has trusted in Christ, has tried to live for Christ, even if his works are awful and always contaminated in thousands of different ways. But he's saying our desire, our aim, rightly should be and will be, if we're walking with the Spirit, to please Christ. Knowing that on that final day, not only are we rewarded for our labor, but then we're giving more opportunities to serve him even in the future world. It's a, there's a reward for your labor. It's not meaningless. There is a reward. It's very plain that the Lord does indeed enter into judgment in this way with Christians for commendation, not condemnation. And Paul says because of this, He's encouraged to speak all the more boldly for Christ. Even if that means he's persecuted because of it. Because he knows this will be rewarded too. Paul will be rewarded even when he's stoned and whipped and beaten in his testimony. He will be rewarded for all the hours of sleeplessness and hunger and thirst. He will be rewarded for all of this. Otherwise, why would he suffer in such a way if he didn't think that there was a reward? If he didn't think that there was a better place and a better body, all of that that goes along with it. But this is the mindset that he calls us to, that we would see our present situation rightly, that this body is not my permanent body, that this place is not our permanent home, and then therefore we would long for something better. It uh, reminds me there was an elderly woman that was living on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. And uh, she was uh, kicked out of her home because it was condemned by the law. And uh, so she had to move out of her old black house with an earthen floor and a failing thatch roof that was caving in. It was full of mold and all sorts of critters that were all living there. But she was living there because it was her home. She wanted to leave. And she was weeping and crying and very, very angry when they kicked her out. But then she was kind of surprised and somewhat pleasantly when she was put in another home that had damp proof walls and running water and a roof that didn't leak. (laughs) Much happier in the end. But she had such a hard time giving up that old home. In our youth, that's how we think. We think we're living in a nice house in a good land. We don't realize that even now our house is infested with termites, asbestos, and black mold. Your body is wasting away. The town in which you live is called the city of destruction. It's under God's curse and wrath. Why would you want to stay here? This is not your permanent abode. If that truth alone doesn't make you groan daily, the more you come to know Christ and to love Christ, you will long 
to be at home with him. That's where Paul is making us think. Think through it again. This is not your home. You continue to cling to it. It will not satisfy you. It will only make you groan all the more. May the Holy Spirit, through the power of Christ, continue to work in us to help us to understand this, to believe it, and to live accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us. We are just as foolish and ignorant as that woman in Scotland who wanted to stay in her place because it was familiar to her. She had all of her things around her and thought that this was the, as good as it gets. Lord, we're so blind. We're so poor and don't even know it. We pray that you would continue to teach us the truth of the resurrection, continues to teach us the truth of uh, the depravity of our sin, the dilapidation of our body, and the destruction of this world. Continue to help us, Lord, to believe these things.